Hey, thanks all around the room. You can be seated. Welcome to you. If you would open up your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 21 today. The uh, information on the screen is wrong. That's my fault. We are really only going to make it through um, oh, uh, verse sorry, 26 today. And so we'll have Gary pick up at verse 27 next week. So we're going to cover 17 down through 26 today. And uh, so what I want to do is read the text and, uh, and then we'll dive into it uh, together. Okay? So uh, Acts 21, starting at verse... 17. Here we go. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealots, zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is there to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we need help. We need help to, uh, to set it in its context and to, to learn from it and grow from it. And I know I prayed after the song, but I hope you don't mind. I'm going to pray one more time, all right? So let's go right back to the Lord. Father, for us to actually feast upon your word is miraculous. None of us in this room wants to do that in our flesh. Wanting you and pursuing your word is a sign that the Spirit is alive and at work in our hearts. But we need help. We need help. We are asking you to come and meet with us, to feed us, to teach us. We are asking you to help the eyes of our heart to see the truth and not to... Uh, take in the messages of the world and take them to heart. But Lord, uh, the thing we need you to do with regard to this text is to make, make us see the mission that you've called us to. 
Help us to see it clearly. Help us be committed to it. Help us to see what you're helping us to do. Lord, as uh, we prepare for missions conference, we are reminded that we are missionaries. We are reminded that Sheboygan, Wisconsin is as far away from Jerusalem almost as humanly possible on the globe. And when you, when your disciples, when you spoke to your disciples and said, well, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, Sheboygan, Wisconsin is the ends of the earth. It's shocking that there is an outpost here. And so here we are on the field, in the thick of it, called to do the exact same thing, make disciples. And I pray you'd help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This passage is really all about risk. It's all about danger. And the reality is that most of us spend our lives avoiding danger as much as possible. We want to reduce risk. There's entire industries devoted to reducing risk and making our lives a little more safe. We have car seats, helmets, training wheels. We lock our front doors. We teach our kids to hold our hands near traffic and in certain situations, not to touch the hot stove. We teach them to look both ways before crossing the street. That makes sense. Good, good job, parents. Keep it up. We buy smoke detectors and carbon monoxide sensors and alarms, and we test the batteries regularly. Guys, tomorrow is the month of spring. It's March. Tomorrow's March. You can, I hear a gasp of relief for this. It's, uh, you know, daylight savings. You're supposed to check your, uh, you know, the whole world checks their batteries, I guess, at day, daylight savings time changes. So check your batteries. Moms don't like motorcycles, especially their sons on motorcycles or daughters on motorcycles. Dads don't like their daughters liking boys with motorcycles. <laughs> we teach our kids to eat healthy and to exercise. We save for retirement. We buy life insurance. All of this in an effort to reduce risk. And before I move on, let me just say, this is wise living. We're not poking holes in the idea of being safe. But at the end of all of that risk management and safety seeking, we meet Jesus. We meet Jesus. And he has called us to a position of danger and risk and the willingness to risk our lives for the mission that he's called us to, namely, making disciples of Jesus Christ with everything we are. And in that pursuit, there is no risk management. And that's what this passage is all about. If we look here, we see the very first words. Paul has been warned that there's danger. He's been warned that his life is in. He's actually changed. We're going to talk about this. He's changed where he was going to go with his ministry because there was a, a, a death threat. And now here, he's going to the place where everybody kept saying, whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit says, go to Jerusalem. His friends kept saying, don't go to Jerusalem. It's dangerous there. There's going to be trouble there. Your life will be in danger there. And finally, as you can see in verse 17, we came to Jerusalem. Now, he came to Jerusalem 
for this purpose, and that is to continue to bring the gospel of the grace of God to the world. That was his heartbeat. Now, we know, and you can look at the sermon insert in the bulletin today, and you can see his, his heartbeat is this. There is a, there's twofold thing going on of why Paul was convinced he needed to get to Jerusalem. And basically, the, the overarching uh, physical reality was that he was going to bring a large gift from the Gentile churches to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. There was a famine going on. And so motivation number one for why he was coming is, my brothers are hungry and they need money to be able to make it through the famine. And how beautiful would it be that these Gentiles who have great resources could help the Jewish friends. That, that's motivation number one. Motivation number two is this. There was a growing tension between Jew and Gentile. There was the whole Council of Jerusalem, which we'll talk about a lot in our sermon this morning, uh, tried to figure out how do, we, how do we hold the gospel out for the Gentiles to come by grace, but also make room for the conscience of the Jewish person who has been taught rightly the temple system does nothing anymore, and yet they want to stay in the traditions that they've been taught. And a lot of Jewish believers did that. The festival still told them stories. The uh, systems that they saw put in front of their children still reminded them that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. And so there were Jewish people that wanted to remain in the temple or in the system, if you will, of, of the culture. And so what we're seeing here is this great divide. So the, the council of Jerusalem was supposed to say, okay, um, let's make room for Gentiles. And uh, Paul was seeing that there is this Mighty, mighty gap. His goal, I mean, you talk about a guy who's got big goals. Do you have big goals, ministry goals? His goal was this. Number one, let's uh, feed my friends because they're hungry. But number two, let's take the divide between Jew and Gentile and let's make it go away. And what I want my Jewish friends to see in Jerusalem is that these Gentiles who love Jesus love them. And they're going to share their resources to feed them. And what I want to do is take this divide between cultures and I want to bring it together. I want to make, their, I want to make unity. And so he had this huge goal. Man, what, a, what an example Paul is as he comes into Jerusalem with this large gift. Ultimately, guys, he was risking his life. We'll look at that. He knew he was risking his life. And can I just tell you something? You and I today, uh, one of the reasons, one of the ways that we try to reduce risk in our Christian life, if we're not careful, is we reduce the mission that we're called to. We set smaller goals. Paul had these lofty goals. We set smaller goals and we'll say, well, you know, people don't want to hear about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear about a reigning king. They don't want to hear about uh, how he is preeminent over everything. They don't want to hear about the fact that, that we are sinners who have chosen to be separate from God and in rebelling against his rule and reign, we have made ourselves, chosen for ourselves to be objects of God's wrath. I don't want to hear about the fact that uh, I deserve to be punished. I've earned it. 
They don't want to hear about the fact that to come to God is to relinquish control of your life. It is to exchange your life and to take on you, to have the righteousness of Christ transferred to you and to have your sin debt transferred to him because only Jesus could pay the debt. They don't want to hear uh, about that. They, so what we do is we, we kind of, you know, uh, summarize and we summarize and we summarize. And there are some people that believe that the, the essence of Christianity is trying to be a little bit nicer and kinder hoping for a little bit of moral change while we go to church every Sunday. That's how we mitigate risk today. Not too risky to be a little nicer and a little kinder. It's very risky to say Jesus alone is the way. And so that's the nature of our of our text this morning. Risk is committing ourselves to the mission that God has called us to despite afflictions and dangers. Listen. With no guarantee of success. That's the other part. Gary's going to pick this up next week. Paul's desire to see unity because of a great cash gift and because he was coming and because he loves is a resolute failure at this time. It doesn't happen. And you know what? Sometimes you, you and I devote ourselves to a mission's goal, and we long to see it, and we work hard to bring it to be, and at the end of the day, it, it is an epic fail. And what is God doing when we face things like that? Is it all worth it? These are the questions, I hope, that are on your heart and my heart today. And so God's will and following after him requires risk. Let me finish that up because I read it and I'm trying to read it once and twice and three times so you can get my definition of risk as we go forward. If you want to jot down key ideas, you can. Risk is committing ourselves to the mission that God has called us to despite afflictions and dangers with no physical guarantee of fruitfulness or measurable success and no possibility of failure. And you say, Pastor John, that's not fair. That's like this oxymoron thing. Like, no way you can guarantee success and no way you can fail? How can this be? And this can be because we don't always know what God is doing precisely. But we know that we are called to serve him and to make disciples and to stay on the mission. And we know that ultimately speaking, God is at work in this, this world and there is not going to be one person that he was calling to repent that ultimately uh, is sovereign over that call. Not one human is going to be able to resist. Everyone that God intends to be there at the end will be there at the end. The mission cannot fail. Now, are your efforts going to be fruitful? Paul's weren't all the time. Mine aren't all the time. And here's what I can tell you, Mom. You desire your kids to walk with the Lord. It's not always your fault if they're not. It's not something you did wrong necessarily if they're struggling. 
right? So ultimately, we pray that the Lord would move in their hearts and draw them to the kingdom and that none would be lost and we effort toward that end, but we have no guarantee that it's going to be you to lead them to the Lord and certainly that it's going to be you to lead them to the Lord at a certain time or immediately. And so here we have Paul in Acts 21 and he's uh, committed himself to this amazing, this amazing task of bringing the gospel back to Jerusalem, but mostly trying to unify this, this breach in Jerusalem between Jew and Gentile. So as we get into what we're learning from Paul and what we're learning from Acts chapter 21, I want you to see this, that that as believers, you and I are called, we are called to risk our lives in the bold proclamation of the gospel. And that first point is that we need to, as we are called to this, to carefully review all that God has done one victory at a time. So Paul gets to Jerusalem. Have you ever gotten to that moment when like, okay, that's it. It's go time. It's, it's go time. You know, like the, the, I've got a friend whose daughter went into labor. Actually, my brother whose daughter went into labor this weekend. Okay, listen, it's go time. And whatever happens, that baby's coming. Do you, do you have a situation in your life where it's like, okay, I know it's, it's go time. It's time to move forward. The, the, the time for waiting is over. Tomorrow is March 1st. My son and daughter, future daughter-in-law, they're getting married. We've been talking about March 1st. It's just about go time for the wedding. That's exciting. And so here, Paul is walking up to Jerusalem. He's already, if you just take your finger, at least in my Bible, take my finger over to Acts 20, verse 24. This verse informs and helps us see what's happening as Paul is entering Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. So here's what Paul says. Ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's already resolved ahead of time. This could cost me my life. That's what it says in chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value. Guys, there are people in this room. This isn't just a, uh, uh, although this applies, this is certainly Paul's story, but, but proclaiming Jesus Christ is risking your life in this world. More people have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in the first 1,900 years of church history combined. In the world today, it is a dangerous proposition to name the name of Jesus and hold to him unswervingly. And Paul has already made peace with the fact that this could cost him everything. He comes into Jerusalem probably looking behind him as he comes in because while he's been saying, I must go, it's a, the, the Spirit's leading me, all of his friends, including his closest friends, first friends from the outside, then friends in his traveling party have been saying, Paul, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. This is, this is big trouble. We're going to Jerusalem, but there's going to be danger there. And what do you do when you're convinced that this is God's will and your friends are convinced it's not? 
So he calls the brothers together. Now I want to remind you that he hasn't been in Jerusalem really for about eight years. He left after the Council of Jer- Jerusalem in AD 49. He went out on the, the second missionary journey because he'd already done the first one. He went out on the second missionary journey. Then he touched down in Jerusalem maybe for 24 hours. I mean, maybe 48 hours, but barely just a minute he was there. For a cup of coffee, he was there. And then he continued on, and he did the third missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, you remember, he stayed in Corinth for like two years, or a long time. And on the third missionary journey, he stayed in Ephesus for a couple years. So it's been eight years since he's been with this group of people. He's accountable to them. They sent him out and said, you're our missionary. Go, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go with our blessing." And so now he's back to report to them. So he calls all the elders together and says, guys, let's get together. Let me tell you some things that have been happening. Chapter uh, 21, verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And I love that. I love that because I've thought a lot about 2020 and how I tell the story of 2020. Are you guilty like I am? And, and we should be real, right? 2020 was rough. We should be honest and genuine about things that happened that were tough. When I tell the story, sometimes I'll say, well, the, you know, uh, the, the frustration of the quarantine. Or sometimes I'll tell the story and I'll say, well, the government really, there was, or I'll tell the story and I'll be like, uh, and I start off with a negative and a problem and a hardship. Some years, you've got to start off with a hardship. But can I just tell you, if Paul had told his story of the second and the third missionary journey like I would tell it, he would have said something like, like this. Well, guys, uh, let me just tell you what happened on the second and the third, uh, the third missionary journey. Thanks for asking. When you guys sent me out from Jerusalem, uh, it was really tough, and you gave me a brand new uh, talking point to help Gentiles understand the grace of God, and it was really tough, and I felt a Jewish opposition, Jewish believer opposition at every level. And then the first thing, I, I just want to remind you, I was out there for eight years. You never sent anyone out there. I felt like I was alone all the time. I felt like nobody understood what I was going through, and now I'm back here, and I'm re- rehearsing what I did to you, but I feel like relationship so far away from you. So difficult. There was team tension, and right off the bat, when I left after the uh, council at Jerusalem, you know what happened? Yeah, good old Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with us, and I, John Mark left, and he wanted to bring him back again, and I did not want, so we broke the whole team up. We went our separate ways. That was one of the most difficult ministry uh, uh, tensions And disagreements in my whole life. That happened right off the bat, eight years ago. Then I got to Lystra. Oh, that was a good trip, but uh, we found Timothy, and he was a Greek and good guy and all, but uh, I I circumcised him because I thought it was the right thing to do, and everybody who could criticized me. Then I went to Philippi. I was uh, unfairly imprisoned there. And uh, right when I was in, in, a, in jail, God sent an earthquake. So that was nice. 
Then we got to Thessalonica, and there was a city riot. Three weeks after uh, we got there, they chased us out. They hated us in Thessalonica. I mean, I, I could not have made people more mad there. And then we went to Berea, and we had a, a good start. But the people from Thessalonica hated us so much that they chased us to Berea, and they kicked us out of there too. So I had to run for my life. Then we hit up Athens. And let me just tell you, there's some crazy stuff going on in Athens. And some people there, they were like, oh, yeah, okay. Sounds nice. We'll hear you again, but most of them just mocked me when I was there. And then I hit up Corinth, and I had to leave the temple altogether. You know, I've been going to the temple. I've been trying to reason with people about Jesus. But in Corinth, I got kicked out of the temple altogether by Jewish opposition, and it hurt. And I had to go into this guy's house justice and and totally change the way we try to reach people. I was out there making it up as I went along. I had no idea what to do next. The sin in Corinth, man, that is rough. And you get the idea, don't you? I could keep going and telling you about Ephesus and and how they didn't even know the Holy Spirit. I could talk to you about Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, when there's a plot to kill his life, to to take uh, Paul's life, and he had to make it a different way to go because uh, he wanted to avoid the plot, the killers. Uh, In Troas, I could tell you about the fact that he wanted to stay so much. And here's how he might report that one. I I, I know I was going long. I was too much. This kid fell out of a window and died because I spoke too long. You're going to get the bill, right? No. Obviously, the kid comes back to life by God's grace, and Paul uh, prays over him. But the, the point being, let's just stop. How do you look at 2020? How do you look at the the difficulties? Paul expected crazy ministry challenges. He expected that there was going to be opposition, government intrusion, challenges, internal debates and arguments. He expected that it wasn't going to go how he wanted. Now, that doesn't make it easy. But I am telling you, when Paul wrote down key information that he wanted to share with his team when he got home, it was ministry victories that he wrote down. Is that how you see your life? Ministry victories. It doesn't make the hard go away, but it helps you focus on what God is doing in the moment. And so that's exactly what Paul does. He he focuses on ministry victories. And that's what it says here in Acts chapter 21, verse 20. Uh, Verse 19, after greeting them, he related, listen, one by one. He took great care in telling the story, the things that God had done among the Gentiles. Look at all the ministry victories. There's clarity for Gentiles on grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith faith alone. There is a a new partner in ministry. Silas came with me on this, this uh, amazing uh, second missionary journey. We found Timothy at Lystra. I'm telling you, man, that guy is ready to lead in a church setting, and I'm, we're going to get him set up as a pastor. Uh, we visited all the first journey churches. So remember, he's, he's just gone through second and third missionary journey. He's reporting on him. He said, we went back to all the first journey churches. You cannot believe how people are growing in grace there. There are great things happening as a result of the gospel. In Philippi, there are now incredible disciples that weren't there before. We met this girl named Lydia. Now get this. She was from Thyatira. We wanted to go to Thyatira. God prevented us. And when we got to Philippi, Lydia was one of the first ones. And she's eager to know Jesus. And I know that she is going to take the gospel back to Thyatira. Thyatira. 
Man, look at Lydia. And look at this guy. You know, there's this, this Philippian jailer. Nobody ever got his name. I don't know why. Luke, who's taking amazing notes about everything, can't remember the Philippian jailer's name. But man, that guy, he and his whole family came to faith in Jesus Christ. They all got baptized, every last one of them. What a story. You get the idea. I could tell you about how he would talk about Athens. Guys, we got to send somebody to Athens to follow up because there's no church there yet, but there is a movement of the Holy Spirit in Athens, and we've got to get there. To, win, to help these people know Jesus better. In Corinth, the Jewish reaction made us rethink everything, and this new ministry strategy to not stay in the temple, but to go to Justice, uh, Titius Justice's house, to go to the Hall of Tyrannus in, in Corinth, to go to these, these secular places instead of the temple, that's brand new, and it is so effective, and it would never have come without intense persecution. I am so thankful for intense persecution because new ministry paradigms are springing up all over the place, and the name of Jesus is being glorified. Is that how you see 2020? New opportunities? New relationships that have come? We don't relate to each other just in merely in big groups, but all over the place. We've had to go to smaller groups. We've had to go digital. We've had to connect with people. There's a great movement of worldwide discipleship that has been fast-forwarded, not in spite of COVID, but because of COVID restrictions. And by the way, that's what Missions Conference is all about this year. Please bring your kids Friday night to hear from Rich Brown, Saturday night to hear from John Kozlowski, and Sunday morning next week to hear from Dr. Michael McKay, a prophet Cedarville, to hear all about one of the, one of the themes is going to be how COVID quarantine has fast-forwarded Christian discipleship around the world. In our church. We had an amazing uh, baptism service last September, and we've had people coming, 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 and saying, I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized, because they are now new in the faith and growing in their conviction about Jesus Christ. And so we have an April 16th baptism service lined up. We want you to be there. It's a Friday night at Bethel Baptist Church. We're going to have our praise and worship team there, and we are going to hear testimony after testimony of how God has changed people's life. Listen to me. Because of COVID. Because they were listening in a new way. Those are the ministry stories I'm writing down all over the place. All over the place. Doesn't make the hard go away. Doesn't make the reality that Paul literally is talking to them with bruises probably on his face already. And he's about to be taken into custody and beaten again. Listen, you're not Paul. And I'm not Paul. You are not going to just read Paul and go, now I'm going to just do what, I'm going to become all that Paul was. We can't do that, but we can get what Paul was saying. You can't make the danger certain level living in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, but you can be faithful to the call of God on your life and you can resolve in your heart like Paul did. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. And we could read that and say, well, and this is, by the way, it's chapter 20, verse 22. Now behold, I am in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. But this I know, I've made peace with this. If I lose my life in the uh, uh, 
moving through the call of God to make disciples in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, so be it. So be it. Because God has called us to risk our lives for this task. So this past year, God has been greatly at work in my heart and your heart. And I hope what one of the things he's done is he's given you the ability to laser-like focus on ministry victories, write them down so you can report on them, and you can be a part of them, and you can put your heart to the mindset of Christian discipleship. As believers risk our lives in the bold proclamation of the gospel of God's grace, we, we humbly submit ourselves to spirit-led advisors. So you, you see that uh, he has carefully reviewed all that God has done, and then he's reported it. And can I just say, before we move on to the second point, one last point I want to make about this. It's not like Paul was looking on the bright side. We're not talking about optimism. We're not talking about getting over hard stuff. I'm not asking you to act like the hard stuff didn't happen. Paul is so focused on his eternal home with Jesus Christ, he is so focused on heaven and the realities of heaven, that when he sees what happened in his world, in this, in this life, he simply saw the little minute ministry wins more than he saw what he knew he would see. He knew he would see the trouble. He knew he would see the government intervention. He knew he would have the problems. He knew there would be great, difficult relational stress. None of that surprised him, and none of that to him was noteworthy. What was noteworthy is when the Holy Spirit moved and built the kingdom, and the gates of hell could not stand against it. That's noteworthy. And that's what he was reporting. As believers risk our lives in the bold proclamation of God's grace, the second thing we do is we humbly submit ourselves to spirit-led advisors. Can I just tell you, um, as we come here to the, to, 20, to the 20th verse, the second half, James starts to talk. And I just want to walk through reading this to you, okay? see, You see, brother, how many thousands there were among the Jews of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. In other words, we here in the Jerusalem church have tried to make room for a Jewish expression of Christianity that includes some keeping of the law. Not for the sake of adding to the work of Jesus Christ, not because they don't believe that Jesus Christ's work was enough, but because in keeping the, some of these, these uh, Jewish systems in place, they saw clearly all the things that Jesus fulfilled. And so we haven't fought with them on that. We've let them continue to walk in some of those things. And so that's the world you're coming into, Paul. These people love the law, and they love some of these systems that have been in place. Now listen... Uh, about 14 years after, the right, after this story took place of Paul, God was going to tear down the temple system. God was getting even Jewish Christians ready for life without the temple system. To hold to Jesus alone. Where will we worship you? Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman? Well, you, 
Worship me in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be in, in, in Jerusalem anymore. It's going to be wherever you are because the spirit lives in you, right? But James is saying, look, they just, we're not all ready for that. We've got the temple. We've got the system. And so you have a real, Paul, you have a real like um, identity crisis here in Jerusalem. You want to do this great thing of bringing unity, but the people here in Jerusalem don't see you as a unifier. They see you as a divider. Because as you have gone, now look at verse 21, they've been told about you. This is word on the street. They've been told about you that you teach, listen, all the Jews. So here you are in Philippi and Troas and Athens. And you were told to teach the Gentiles about the grace of Jesus Christ. And word on the street is that you've been teaching even Jews to forget about the law. That wasn't in the deal. And people are really upset that you're doing that. So these people are, you've been teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Can we just take a minute there? Those words are used on purpose to tell a story. Uh, turn over, if you would, please, to Acts uh, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Verse 11. Now I want to set the stage briefly. Gary's going to pick up on this next week as we continue in the passage. But in Acts chapter 6, it was Paul who was questioning Stephen and Philip these newfound deacons. And he approved of the Pharisees questioning them. Now look at verse 11. They secretly, and by the way, when it says they, you can just write in your mind, don't write it in the scriptures, but he was there, Paul. Paul secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words, listen, against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Verse 14, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Those are the exact charges now laid on Paul. When you are committed to Jesus Christ, everything changes. Black becomes white. Brokenness becomes healing. Commitment to doing life your way becomes a radical commitment to doing life God's way. One example would be Sue Thayer. Sue Thayer was a Planned Parenthood clinic manager in Iowa who now this week put a video up and spoke on behalf and at our Planned Parenthood uh, here in Sheboygan. And she really spoke on behalf of the 40 days of life prayer vigil. 
And she said, I used to work here in Iowa. I used to go in there and approve of and help with with abortions. Now I've met Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Everything has changed for me. And now I stand here to tell you that the president and the Supreme Court control nothing when it comes to abortion. God calls you and me to pray. He is in control of everything as we bring the light of Jesus Christ to this situation. Count on God to do this work. Her life is radically changed. Black to white. Paul's life In Acts chapter 6, he is an oppressor of Stephen. He stood and literally approved of them taking his life. And now in Acts chapter 21, he's the accused. Guys, when God comes, he changes everything. And I trust that you can explain to your kids When we say he's changed everything, we mean he's changed fundamentally how our lives are organized. He's changed fundamentally our our outlook on everything. We no longer are 100% committed merely to to, uh, safety and ease in this world. We are committed to wise safety and ease, but we are committed to bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to friend and neighbor and everyone who will listen to us even if it costs us our lives. And so we humbly submit ourselves to these spirit-led advisors. So all of that to say, as we get back to Acts chapter 21, James comes and says, now look, you are not the one to bring this unity that you so long. And by the way, Paul is here. There are so many portions of this passage I want to point out. Uh, Look at verse uh, uh, 18. Uh, 21:18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. If you look at verse 18, where it says with us, that's the last plural pronoun in the story for a long time. What does that mean? It means after that, Paul was all alone. He's all by himself in Jerusalem. His friends moved out of the middle. He's having to give answer for himself. You will start out with ministry partners and you will be put in a situation in your life when you are all alone. You have to answer for yourself. And so here James is really saying to Paul, Paul, this grand desire you have to come to Jerusalem, you're going to stir Jerusalem up. This is not going to work. You're not the guy to bring unity. You are a lightning rod. And so he's having to say to to Paul, are you self-aware? Do you know what people think of you? Do you know how you're perceived? Can I just tell you, one of the applications of this text would be this, mom, where you go to your husband and say, am I aware of how the children perceive me? What do I need to work on as I'm trying to disciple them? Am I the one to bring the message? Paul was done listening to other people's input and he just decided he was the one. And James is saying, I don't think so. This isn't going to work. 
Is someone else better equipped for this ministry task, Dad, than you are? At some point, their, the desire to see unity in the church is going to grow, and Paul's going to write the letter of Romans, and he's going to hammer this home for chapter after chapter after chapter. Unity, one person. We're together on this. And so there is another way in which unity can be brought. But, but Paul, you've got to deal with the fact that it's not going to be now, and it's not going to be you. And so what they do is they contrive this whole story of go to the temple and make a public display of you uh, observing the law so that the Jewish detractors can see that you, you care about the law. Whether or not this is a wise thing, I don't know the answer. And honestly, I don't think this text, it, it really matters if that's the wise thing. Here's what Paul did here. Paul is saying, look, I brought, the, I brought the gift. I'm here today. I want unity. And James is saying it's not going to work out. And, and in essence, what Paul says is, okay, I don't know what to do next. What do I do next? Now, do you ever get to the point where you look at spiritual advisors, and I don't like that word spiritual, you look at Christian advisors, and you say to them, please speak into my life. You know me, you see what's going on in my world. I'm, I'm inviting you to say to me today, speak into my life, where's my blind spot? Where do I not know how I'm perceived? Help me out. I don't know what to do next. What do I do next? And James took the initiative to say, this is what you do next. Whether it was good advice or not good advice might not be for us to say, but the bottom line is Paul humbled himself and says, I will follow what you ask me to do. Humble yourself. Ask for advice. Ask for input and take it and carry it out. Especially when you have any inkling in your heart that you don't know what to do next. I know what to do next should involve disciple making, but I don't know what to do next. And we put ourselves in relationship with one another. Next week, we're going to see what happens. You can read one verse ahead and you can see Here's what happens. Paul's desire to see unity comes to a complete and utter and resolute failure. How do you handle it? When your great ministry desire crashes and burns. Let me close by saying this. So here we are, Paul. Tell us, in the midst of your call to make disciples, how do you see your life? Is your life limited by government intrusion or dates on a calendar? No, he would say, I expected trouble in that respect. That was no big deal. Marked by other Christians who left you or failed you? No, no. I, that, we're going to work that out, and we'll certainly work it out in eternity. Is your life tragically marked by intense grief? Paul, are you going to be the, the one who grieved forever? Listen, grief is real. But is that going to be what marks Paul? Nope. No, that's not going to be what marks him. I expected grief in this world, and that's what made me live for heaven. That's what made heaven so real and so close to me every day. I count on the fact that in heaven, my grief will be turned into help and hope, and my mourning will be turned into dancing, and my crashed and broken heart will be exultant in the presence of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. No, I expected some grief in this world. Paul, are you just an optimist? Are you just looking on the bright side? You just write down the good things? Nope. Nope, the end is coming. And I expect that I could die here in Jerusalem right now because of Jesus Christ. 
So here is Paul's message to you today. Join him in making disciples. Get involved in the task. See the people around you that need to know who Jesus Christ. Commit yourself to this beautiful and dangerous calling. Work hard at it and let your commitment to it produce great tears, great angst. Take some time today to list out with laser-like focus ministry victories that God has provided for you and in you because of you. Paul said it's because of my ministry, because of your ministry. People should know Jesus Christ and you should write that down to carry you through the darkest days. Yes, even through you and don't Stop. Along the way, open yourself up to some great friendships, great ministry partners, eternal partners. Because this task that may not physically come to fruition in your lifetime cannot fail. Let's stand and be dismissed. Lord, You are the one. You will bring every ministry goal, every intention of your kingdom to be. Walking around these walls, we thought by now there would be smooth sailing and easy progress in front of us. But you have never failed us yet. And so we are waiting for change to come. Even while the battle is won. Do it again, Father. Be so real in each of our hearts today. Help the one who is facing a really difficult task this week to do it well. We believe you'll do it again. Help the one who is begging you to save their children begging you that their kids would come to faith in Jesus Christ or their grandkids. Lord, would you do it this week? Would you move? Would you help us stay on task? Help the one whose life is literally in danger this week to realize that if life ends in this world, it's going to be okay. Because heaven is real and heaven is forever and you are faithful. We're still in your hands. This is our confidence. You have never failed us yet. In Jesus' name, amen.